and welcome to this week's edition of the Wise Up TX podcast. This is your host, Ezra Siddiqui. As a reminder, Wise Up Texas is my platform to inform the South Asian community about Texas and national politics. You can find us on all forms of social media, such as Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. You can check out our podcast on Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, and last but not least, they're also played on Radio Azad on Coffee Mornings with Aisha. Remember everyone, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. All right, everybody, I have an interview for y'all today, and it is with Asma Uddin, and it is about her latest book that came out called When Islam is Not a Religion. And I'm sure you must be thinking about the title like, wait, what? Um, I completely understand where y'all are coming from. I believe it's a very eye-catching title. And I want to read a little bit from, you know, the book cover about how that title title necessarily came about. We definitely discuss it in the interview, but um, Asma Udin is a religious liberty lawyer and she's worked on several cases at the U.S. Supreme Court and federal appellate and trial courts. Um, she's also the founding editor-in-chief of altmuslima.com and a producer and advisor for the Emmy and Peabody-nominated docuseries The Secret Life of Muslims. And so within her work, uh, she has learned that In several of the court cases, Muslims aren't human enough for human rights or constitutional protections, and it's a moving from the fringe to the mainstream, along with the claim, Islam is not a religion. And this situation impacts all Americans because the loss of liberty for one means the loss of liberty for everyone. And this book essentially looks at how faith in America is being secularized and politicized, and the probably detrimental repercussions this has on debates about religious freedom and diversity. And so that's pretty much a very broad overview, and we're going to go into that a little bit more detail in our interview with Asma, so stay tuned. And joining us today is Asma Uddin, who is the author of her newly released novel, When Islam is Not a Religion, Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ezra, for having me. So why don't you explain to my listeners what your book is about and your title, where it says When Islam is Not a Religion. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting when I was setting out to you know write, this, write and publish this book, um, some people were just like, I don't think Muslims are going to like your title. Um, but actually, I've been getting like a lot of really positive responses to it. I think people are intrigued, and that was the the point, right? But also just the fact that it's um, it's just it's a fact. It's actually tying into this claim, unfortunately, being made increasingly so from very prominent people, including people in the White House, um, that Islam is not a religion, that it is instead a dangerous political ideology, and therefore Muslims do not get religious freedom. Wow. Do you mind giving some examples? I know, you know, I just listened to you um, on the panel at TripFest, but I know that you mentioned some examples of, you know, where it came to mosques or cemeteries. Do you mind going into some of those examples of, because you are, uh, you are also a religious liberty lawyer, right? So right. where, you know, where did you see these instances come about? Yeah, so the book actually, um, in chapter one, opens with the story of the Islamic Center Murfreesboro in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And it was a case that I was involved in at later stages of the litigation, um, where it was actually there, the 
there was a, the Muslims of Murfreesboro set out to build a mosque um, in much the same pattern that you see in so many other places across uh-huh. the U.S. where it's like, you know, like a community comes and it starts off in like holding prayers in uh, apartment building, in someone's apartment, and then it moves on to like, uh, like a small rented you know, storage space, um, garages, uh, warehouses. You know, we've seen that and, and the community keeps growing. And at a certain point, it's just like, look, we, we need a facility. We need to have a actual proper building. And this is a story of the Muslim community in so many different parts of America. It should seem pretty uncontroversial, but unfortunately, uh, when, the, when the Muslims of Murfreesboro set out to make this, um, to make their mosque, um, they were, and the county approved it just the way that it approves so many other houses of worship. There was some really fierce local opposition that said, well, hold up, you can't, county actually sue the county Uh um saying you can't approve this house of worship using the same processes that you use for other houses of worship okay um because in fact this is not a house of worship islam is not a religion it is in fact a political ideology so a very a very dangerous one Uh um and poses a security threat to our community and um and you know and so the the allegation there was this should have been much more higher level of notice given to the community um so this was the, the, the context in which I heard in very sort of explicit terms this argument that Islam is not a religion. Right. And then said Muslims um, should be treated differently from every other religion. Right. Um, and, if, and that wasn't the last time, unfortunately, that I heard that. Um, I have since heard that uh, coming from just all corners um, and, and from people who unfortunately these days have a lot of power. Yeah, and do you feel that this is only pinpointing towards Islam, or do you feel there's other religions that are getting impacted? Like, you know, our organization, we are, um, you know, overviewing, not overviewing, but we are representative of the South Asian community, and we see, like, Hindus and Sikhs and even, like, Christian South Asians that are dealing with a lot of the same racism that Muslims are dealing with. So I'm just curious, do you see any of that also occurring within, like, Hindus wanting to build temples or Sikh people wanting to build gurdwaras? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, the subtitle here is Inside America's Fight for Religious Freedom. And so this isn't just inside Muslims' fight for religious freedom. Um, I really just sort of look at this bigger phenomenon that's happening in America with respect to religious freedom um, and to some extent other other human rights as well. you know, through the prism of attacks on Muslims, but by no means is the message and the concern limited to that group. Um, on the question of racialization, you know, I understand that so much of this is also driven by racism. I think that we can't we can't disentangle the two, um, but I try to focus on this from like a legal perspective. Um, but absolutely, the racialization of Muslims, the perception of Muslims as sort of the threatening other who is almost uniformly thought of as with brown skin even though yeah. there's so many muslims across the world who do right. not fit that phenotype and here in the u.s do not fit that phenotype um and unfortunately i mean there's a section of the book that does talk about the way that sikh americans um end up having to face the brunt of so much hatred because they're um part of it because they're mistaken as muslims right so they're also victims of anti-muslim hate crimes but also because they are like another religious group, um, and more specifically a religious minority that doesn't um, sort of fit certain racial and cultural notions of what you know people think America is. Right. So, I guess you know, kind of going back to like your career in that you have been a religious liberty lawyer. What made you get to that point? Um, 
you know, I, I'm just curious, and I'm sure my listeners are as well, about you know how your career has evolved and that eventually it got you to write this book. Yeah, so I have been doing this for um, almost 10 years. Um, and I think it was just kind of, you know, today during the panel, Tom Jelton from NPR, who was our moderator, asked me the question, just like, you know, how do you end up, how did you end up developing this philosophy that you should protect this right across, across religious lines, across political lines, even for people you might not like, people, even people with whom you disagree? And I said the philosophy from the get-go that, that was inculcated in me was this idea that religious liberty is the right to be wrong. Uh-huh. Right? Like, it's just, I'm not here to stand in judgment of your particular religious claim. Okay. Um, and so that means I, that means I can end up getting involved in some, and I have, in some very controversial cases. Um, but unfortunately, like, even though I was really kind of pressing this integrity and this coherence in my own advocacy, I didn't see that same um, coherence being afforded to my own religious community. Uh-huh. Right? So there were far too many people that I felt were comfortable claiming religious freedom for themselves, um, but not extending it to Muslims. And that is ultimately where the book came from. All right, so what's next? So, you know, you've written this book, you know, we've talked, you've talked on this panel as well, and I'm sure you talk on several panels about uh, there are so many dangers to those that are stating that, you know, religious freedom, and, you know, you stated on the panel earlier that you feel that it is also coming more from the right side, that they're talking about religious freedom, but at the same time, they're not considering Islam as a a religion, it's more of a political ideology, so they don't deserve those same protections as freedom of religion, but where do you go from here next? Like, what, knowing that you have this information, you know, having it as fact, you know, you've done your research in your book, you've given the examples, what is it that people can do next? Yeah, well, I think the huge part of writing the book was to increase literacy about what religious freedom is exactly. And so there's actually um, one chapter that's actually titled, What is Religious Freedom Anyway? Um, and then another chapter um, that has maybe less of a direct title like that, but you know, seeks to educate the reader about what exactly do we mean when we're talking about religious freedom? Because that has to be a starting point. And I think that so much of the discourse today politically um, on a national and local level about religious liberty is just kind of like a big mess because people don't even have like the basic sort of legal tools to be able to just figure out how do we navigate this space, right? Whether it be this epic you know, battle between conservative Christian claims to religious freedom and sexual freedom, right? The service servicing of gay couples, for instance. Um, how do we even begin to figure out that really, really complicated issue if we don't even have the basics or literacy about the concepts and the basic sort of legal principles that are at play? So the first thing is just to to become educated. Uh, maybe start with the book, but there's plenty of other stuff out there. There's tons of resources. Um, and then I think um, you know you know I end the, the the book with sort of telling the reader that we're in this place where the fights are just getting worse. Uh We're just becoming meaner about things. Yeah. And I don't think that's actually going to lead us anywhere. I think it's just leading each side to dig in their heels even more. And I think that in order to break the impasse and to come to a place where America is less divided, um, we have to also just be able to see sort of like the human on the other side. Yeah. Um, Instead of just sort of looking at a person (laughs) thinking, oh, like a Republican agenda or... A liberal agenda or whatever you know like it's always about the politics but it's like can we just strip that away and just see the person and maybe if right. we humanize the debate in that way and just be like look this is a religious believer who has a deep 
you know, religious belief in having to do certain things for, you know, because it's so critical to their meaning of their life, to their duty to, to God. Um, and then maybe that kind of begin by lowering the temperature in these culture wars, and maybe we can begin to think a little bit more clearly. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned also in the panel that you have also seen a resurgence of this, I think, since 2011, right? Uh, about, you know, Islam not being a religion and not having those protections. And then you also mentioned about how so many states, you mentioned, I believe, 30 states have passed anti-Sharia so 43 states have either considered or passed. Right. Um, and now, ironically, Texas has filed the most. Um, that's a, that's probably a, not so ironic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yes, uh, that is true. But at the same time, the, the demographics of Texas are changing, right? Like it's getting closer and closer to a swing state. So most of those legislation that has been filed has been um, more from the right. Uh, it did pass last legislative session, uh, I believe, in 2017, and it went. It didn't have that much like of a hoopla as it usually does. Uh, for some reason, I think it like just went under the radar, but it did end up passing, and uh, which is really unfortunate. But I, I'm curious as to what you would think. Like you know, you talk about like this is educate. Your book is educating and like understanding those situations. But do you think? And you haven't talked so much about politics, but do you think there comes a point when you, when you see these instances happening, when you see that the legislation has been passing, that is now more important than ever to be politically active and mm -hmm. to be up, involved and to like have your voice out there? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the entire book is actually has politics sort of running through it because, mm -hmm. you know, huge impetus behind this. I mean, if look, if religious freedom was like this legal... Um, argument which it is but if it was just sort of like with you know focused in the realm only of courts courts of law then I don't think that the type of issues that I'm concerned about would really have given rise to the need to write a book about it it's the point at which religious freedom has become deeply deeply politicized right, right. Um, and the way that that the pot politicization has unfortunately led to the deprivation of rights for primarily religious minorities um, primarily but not entirely um, and so I think that in trying to come sort of face off against this, this phenomenon, which unfortunately the nature of the political polarization is that it puts our human right to religious freedom at risk. I right. mean, it's like a pretty serious issue. This is a, considered a really core human right. Um, and now we're about to lose it in many, in, yeah. you know, in, in many, and many parts. people come to America. I mean, this country was founded based on religious freedom, right? So it's basic core principle and foundation mm -hmm. and to think that it's being eroded right um is a very mm -hmm. scary prospect right and it, it's already begun it depends like where, what are we going to do to stop it right? right and so much of that i mean even the people there's there are the people who are very focused on fighting this in courts of law right and that used to be a huge part of what i did <coughs> um and, I, and i'm still involved in um in various degrees um but i think even those people like if you go and talk to the law professors and even some of the lawyers who are in this space they'll tell you that the battle is really has to be won in the culture and so that but i feel like those who are fighting this in the culture um and trying to protect this human right have to have an understanding of what the law is you can't separate the two because religious freedom is a legal right right um and so I think that, you know, in terms of your question about what can people do, and I said, well, educate yourself. It's not necessarily to educate yourself and 
go be a lawyer. Um, it's educate yourself so that you can be more informed when you engage in the political debates. All right. So I'm going to pivot over to Alt Muslima, uh, which you are a founder of. Am I correct? Mm -hmm. And you talk, or not you particularly, but the online publication, you know, engages on a lot of different issues such as gender, politics, and religion. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the gender issues that are discussed on Alt Muslima and the reasonings for why, you know, you. I feel like you've put that on the forefront of the online publication to an extent. Yeah. So I mean. Um, it came from a place where I grew up as an American Muslim and just sort of my lived experience of Islam, even as I was very sort of devout and deeply tied to my faith, um, I couldn't help but notice like there was these sort of gender disparities, um, not just in the way that people talked about the Muslim community from the like outsiders talked about it, like, well, you know, Islam is like oppressive to women and Islam right. does X, Y, and Z. So their observations definitely created this picture and have created this picture of Islam being gender oppressive. Um, and it's easy enough to battle that, right? I mean, not easy, but I think intellectually easy to create these like compartments, outsiders attacking Muslims. But then what really made it complicated, and I think that really kind of got to me, especially as somebody who was going, you know, the inspiration for this was my college years. Uh -huh. um, seeing that, but then also noticing stuff inside the community. So it, it wasn't like we were living this perfectly gender equal, gender fair, right. ex, ex, you know, existence. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, you silly people outside. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, unfortunately, I did see lots of problematic uh, practices. Um, whether it be sort of um, particular gender roles that I thought were, um, and, and I'm totally fine with people living tradi traditional gender roles. I think in many ways I probably fit that bill as well, depending, you know, in the sense that my husband is the primary breadwinner and so on. Um, but I think there was just a sense of coercion, a sense of, of silencing of women. I, th I think I think hijab is a, is a wonderful sort of expression of Islamic devotion and Islamic, in, especially currently political rebellion. Um, but I also saw cases in which it was very clear to me that, it's, that the hijab was being used as a tool of oppression. And so while I think it's completely wrong for people outside the community to say that is what hijab is, uh -huh. it's also completely wrong for people within the community to not understand that there are plenty of cases in which it is used that way. Right. And so um, I think- Do you feel like this was like an outlet to give all women yeah, like you know, I started exactly. Well, uh, I started to, with this book club that I started when I was living in Philadelphia, and uh -huh. I started this book club that drew people from um, from Pennsylvania, from New Jersey, and from New York. That was like the tri-state area, and I just saw this like outpouring of like genuine grief and sort of almost like like torment. I guess like a lot of people were just like we've been dealing with all these different things, whether it be women who are in their mid thirties and are you know, dealing with constant community disparagement about why they're not married yet, uh -huh. women who are infertile and they're dealing with all the social stigma around that, um, people who were divorced and what they had to kind of deal with. And this is, right. remember, this is like 2009 when I started this. Uh, and the conversation leading up to it were even earlier than that. Um, you know, whether it be just like people just feeling constantly judged and limited because they either like wore a hijab, decided to stop wearing the hijab, didn't wear the hijab. Um, and I just saw that's like, like I said, it was like a really genuine outpouring. And I was like, this is, and this is like the early days of the internet. The internet was back then in 2009 yeah. is nothing like what it is now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so you have to understand that this is like, this is really sort of revolutionary to be like, well, 
these people who I'm sitting among like really find so much benefit out of this. What if we just take it to a national platform, right? National and international, but ultimately concerned with American issues. Um, so that people from, you know, like I remember growing up in Miami and feeling I had no one to t- turn to or talk to about these issues. And yeah. like, how many other women are there who can't be part of my book club in the tri-state area, but they're in California, or they're in Alabama, and they're just, they don't have access to like, you know, people in Alabama, Muslims in Alabama don't have access to yeah, uh, our top community. Our large, large communities or to top scholars, right? Yeah. The type of scholars who help me navigate some of these conflicts. So I'm like, why do we put it online? Why don't we create that space where it's Muslim women and men who are writing pieces, who are are thinking through the stuff critically. It's also a platform to interview scholars and Mm -hmm. put up their interviews because now, even if you are that person in Alabama and the scholars living in Chicago, now you've got access to them. And again, if you look at it through a 2019, you know, perspective this is kind of like of course like obviously but like in 2009 that was a still like a pretty radical idea it was yeah I and mean, now it's grown so much you have like such a large following you have so many people writing for it reading it I mean I mean it's really grown mm-hmm. yeah well honestly it just kind of it was sort of magnetic from the very beginning uh-huh. um I think a lot of people um we just didn't have that space they just needed that space really badly well, I want to thank you so much, Asma. And um, if you want to tell my listeners, you know, where they can check out Alt Muslimah in case they haven't heard of it or um, where they can go purchase your book. I'm sure it's like in all the bookstores. Yeah. But if you have any other additional info to give, please do. Yeah. So Alt Muslimah is A-L-T. And I was on the Alt bandwagon way before Alt became a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so A-L-T-M-U-S-L-I-M-A-H. So it's A-L-T Muslimah. Dot com, um, and my website is my first and last name together, A-S-M-A-U-D-D-I-N.com. And you'll find lots of links there um, about the book, reviews, where to buy it. Um, and you can also you know, find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, um, and wherever books are sold. Awesome. Thank you so much, Asma. Yeah, thank you. Take care. All right, everyone, and that's our segment for today. I hope you all found it to be informative. Remember, you can find her book, When Islam is Not a Religion, um, at your local bookstore or on Amazon.com. You can also check out her website, asmauddin.com, A-S-M-A-U-D-D-I-N.com. And everyone, if you are enjoying our podcast and our interviews, I highly recommend for you all to leave us a review. It really, really helps us out at Wise Up Texas. And I hope you all... We'll continue to subscribe to our podcast and check out a, check us out on social media. And last but not least, check out our website, www.wiseuptx.com. All right, everyone. Remember, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. Until next time. <laughs>